Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Well, hello there, and welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. With me today is Dr. Diana Anka, Director of Non-Operating Room Anesthesia at Well Cornell Medicine. She's also a speaker, author, and even a patent holder. Hello, Dr. Diana. How are you doing? Hi, good morning. Good morning, Leticia. Thank you so much for having me um, in your podcast. Uh, very popular and very interesting podcast. Oh, that's very nice of you. I appreciate it. Well, you know, I I always love having doctors on the show because it's something that I think touches all of us at some point or the other. And I think that sometimes we don't get the chance to see the human part of doctors. So I think that it's great in the podcast to learn about your journey and how you got to be uh, where you are today. So why why don't we start there? I, I sense an interesting accent. Tell me where you're from. Um, that's a good um, conversation starter. Uh, I get it a lot. So I'm Romanian born. Okay. Uh, and I completed my medical studies in Romania. And then I passed all the exams and I completed my training post uh, graduation from medical school in the United States in New York City. I'm a New Yorker, not born and raised, but um, adopted. I see, but. Well, that's great. That's great. We had a lot of New Yorkers here, but I'm going to backtrack because I haven't had a lot of born and raised in Romania. So I want to know a little bit about that. Is it uh, how was life back there? What are your memories? And uh, when you dream about what you were going to be when you were older, did you dream about becoming a doctor? I'm always curious about Um, that. Yes. So I grew up in communist Romania, uh, which is not glamorous or even easy. Uh, on the contrary, so, you know, TV programs are very short and limited to a few hours a day, and they are mainly, you know, propaganda. But I remember being, you know, very young, maybe five years old, and a lot of the TV shows that were in the United States would take years and years and years to get to Romania. And I remember a show, there was something like a ranger from Texas came to New York. It was like a silly show. And, you know, I remember being mesmerized by the uh, skyscrapers in the New York streets. And I remember being five years old and thinking it would be so nice to live there. Mm. So that's my, my first view and thought of New York City. As far as being a doctor, what I think is that a lot of people, I think a lot of children say when they little, oh, I want to be a firefighter or a doctor or an um, astronaut or, you know, and I kind of wanted to always be a doctor. I remember treating my colleagues in kindergarten, you know, like trying to bandage <laughs> them and all that and trying to poke injections. Certainly my dolls are poked also all over the place. But when I actually went to primary school, we had this little like first aid um, classes, which, you know, surprising for a communist, you know, culture. 
But I remember being part of that and being on the first response, somebody kind of scraped their knees or and made a first aid. I was all over them. So I remember loving it from then. But as far as a conscious decision, I remember being 15, ninth grade, end of ninth grade. And, you know, in Europe, in general, after high school, you go directly to university and you pick a subject. It's no college where you kind of have a chance to, to decide. And so I remember being 15, finishing ninth grade and saying to myself, putting together the manuals for the next year, I said, I need those because I'm going to medical school. And nobody in my family went to university before. So I am the first one. That is pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, I I, I don't want to pound on the subject, but, you know, normally we've had guests that had a a pretty stable and, you know, common childhood. But I've also had guests that have come, you know, from Nazi Germany and from communist countries. And I always find that the story is so inspiring because people listening Sometimes we think we have the worst, right? How, how worse can it be? And then they listen to stories of someone like you that was raised in a communist country where, you know, now, well, I'm from Venezuela. So for the past 20 years, although it doesn't have that official label, it's pretty much also a communist oh, yes. country. Oh, yes. My best friend is from Venezuela and one of my colleagues here. So I know a lot about it. Yeah. And it's hard to to explain and it's almost like you are in a in a limbo because they want to make the world believe they're one thing but in reality you I cannot I'm wearing a red jacket today I cannot wear this jacket in Venezuela because I would immediately be labeled yeah yeah absolutely and that and so so of your experience like what do you think make you who you are? Is there anything that you think, wow, because I had that situation in my, that upbringing, I, I am stronger, I'm more resilient. What what did growing up in a communist country leave you with? You know, a lot of things, you know, I'm, my parents divorced when I was three and I was raised by my grandmother and my grandmother never went to school because her father died when she was, before she was born. And she, her mom never had money to send her to school. So she always wanted to she learned to read and write from her parents, my mom and her siblings, when they went to school. That's how driven she was. So I think we are kind of kindred souls. I want, always wanted to learn. And once I set my mind on medical school, you know, think about it. Uh, communism rejected religion. So we'll go to church sometimes, but careful to not be seen uh, by anybody or, you know, uh, reported. There were no real news or real books. And I remember listening to Voice of America with my grandmother in the dark, you know, or uh, Free Europe. There were two radio programs that obviously were outlawed in Romania, but I think a lot of people were listening. There were foreign languages. I learned Spanish as a, my first foreign language as a second grade. And to this day, I love it. And I, I do speak Spanish, um, not like a native speaker, but I wow, that. that's great. And then I started English as a as a second language in a fifth grade. And you know, it's you know, money was not um plentiful. I remember first year in medical school deciding between uh, a pair of shoes and an uh, anatomy atlas that I needed for <laughs> my training. Oh my god, I'm afraid to ask. What did you you sound like you chose the atlas? <laughs> of course. <laughs> but hence my 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 love for shoes. Uh, anybody who knows me, I can open a, a store. Ah, there you go. 
Well, but that's that's almost full circle, right? When the yes. time was in need, you, you chose what was right, but now you can buy your shoes I and can. I'm glad you're doing it. <laughs> and also, you know, interesting because the TV show, the TV program itself was a few hours a day and a bit on the weekend. I'm also a big lover of TV. So I'm a TV addict, as bad as mm-hmm. it sounds. You know, lights, electricity was not. They will cut it at sometimes a few hours a day to save Hence, all my lights in my apartment are on all the time. <laughs> so, but, but that being said, the medical school was great and the teachers were solid. And I, to this day, say I got a solid education. It might not be Ivy League, but um, it served me well. And, uh, and I have to tell you, once I stepped foot in New York City, I kid you not, I felt home. To the, wow. the first time I visited back in Romania, I couldn't wait to come back. I, I was like homesick for New York. Wow, that's uh, it's funny you say that because I was gonna ask you, like, tell me what it was like that moment when you arrived in New York, like a fish in the water. <laughs> well, that's so amazing. Like, you somehow life had it that you were gonna be in New York and then you made it happen somehow, and and you are enjoying it, which is. Great, and you're doing very important job. I mean, you you you're the director. I, I when we were discussing a few minutes before the interview, I wanted to make sure I said this because I know nothing about the medical <laughs> field. But you know, you are the director of non-operating room anesthesia or NORA, so I know that that creates a lot of confusion. Tell me a little bit about what you do there. So interesting you say that because um, non-operating room anesthesia—it's a newer subspecialty. To the point that when I told some friends, colleagues, I mean, physicians, anesthesiologists, that I will be appointed as the director of NORA at Cornell, they said, what is that? Is a neural anesthesia? Is it you're not going to do anything in the operating room? So um, about 60% of all the operations that take place this day in the U.S. hospitals take place outside the operating room. And that encompasses the electrophysiology laboratory, the uh, catheterization suite, interventional radiology, gastroenterology, MRI, and so on. And that's because when patients become more, become sicker and they are too high risk to go for a full operation. So those are minimally invasive. They are very, very technical. Uh, Some of the most amazing um, innovations uh, devices are in this fields of electrophysiology, interventional radiology, um, gastroenterology, and most like science fiction. So it's something that's taking off, has taken off in the last few years. And there are departments like ours where it's a fully established division and some others where they don't have it yet. It's not quite established in Europe, but more and more you see it at a conference. So it's kind of my mission to make it known because I honestly think, and it's a place because it's complicated and it's outside far from help that people consider it a punishment to be assigned there because <laughs> patients are sick. It's, it's heavy work. So I make it my mission to make it uh, popular and known to nationally and internationally. That's great. And then that's why, you know, I love to have doctors on the show because I think, again, it's such a, specific field that unless you are in it, you don't know a lot of what's going on. And then, you know, I have two kids, maybe one of them wants to study medicine 
And uh, I also feel like a responsibility to understand the possibilities. And just right. what you say, sometimes you feel like, well, we know there's innovation, obviously, but it's almost like there's so much you can be. And I had some doctors that, that you know, neuroscientists and, and doctors that you really don't think about it when, when you think doctor, right? right? You think the general doctor, or right, you, think, right. you know, the surgeon, but you don't think all these branches of medicine, except, well, I did tell you before the interview, I know you guys are the ones in Venezuela, they say, I'm going to give you a little champagne right, right in the operating room. <laughs> we say the same here. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. It works. They say, okay. <laughs> and because but, that's what patients say when you give them a little shot for like the beginning. Um, that's why they describe it. I feel like I had a glass of wine or, or a tequila or something. I feel like <laughs> I'm relaxed now and so it also helps them to relax and kind of relate to what we're doing. Yeah. And, and, and you guys are, you know, because it's almost like you're not the doctor that's going to cut you up. You are, you know, you're almost like a neutral. <laughs> that's what, so, you know, when I try to explain people, because it, it's, it's not so known, it's a well-established specialty. And, um, you know, the first anesthetic took place, general anesthetic in the 1846 in Boston. Um, so it's it's not a new specialty, but people still perceive that as, are you a doctor? What you Most of the people think we go in, give an injection, go about, and then come back at the end, snap our fingers. And, and you know, we are there for the whole time. We monitor. We always say that, you know, we're trying to keep the patients stable and alive while the procedure is taking place and a lot of changes are happening. And, you know, of course, the more complex the procedure the more complex of what we do. And there are subspecialties in anesthesia, such as cardiac anesthesiology. Which I am a cardiac anesthesiologist by training. So where you do additional training, there is pediatric, where you take care of kids, anesthetized kids. There's pain management, there's regional anesthetic, there's obstetrics, there's neuroanesthesia if you need brain surgery. So we all subspecialize because it's so complex that one person cannot, just like the surgeons are, you know, a heart surgeon, a brain surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon. So we cannot, it's so complex that one person cannot possibly cover everything properly. Yeah, no, it, it makes a, a whole lot of sense. And uh, I know I interviewed one of your colleagues, Dr. Ruth, and she said, you have to interview Dr. Anka because she's doing a whole lot of Work in, you know, in the, the freebilators. I don't know how to pronounce these words. That's correct, the fibrillators. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and even how it can affect if you have an iPhone 12 and all these, it's uh, it's fascinating. So I, I definitely want to give you an opportunity there to, to just share with this. And this is what makes you tick. So obviously <laughs> I have to open uh, that discussion. So I have been interested in electrophysiology, which is basically studying of the rhythm of the heart, but also implanting devices, pacemakers, defibrillators. And when we think of those, when even my colleagues think of those, we think of the battery that you have here with the wires going into the heart. And that's probably a thing we, we still put them in, but there is a whole new generation of leadless wireless devices where we don't have those wires. We don't have this battery here. There's a pacemaker that's really like my pinky. That's all a battery and device in one. It goes into the tip of the heart. You don't see anything. There's no wires. There is something that stays outside of the body. It's called a subcutaneous 
defibrillator that goes around here and the batteries here. And a lot of those now are smartphone compatible, so you can uh, get information of those devices. But recently, as our devices, our phones get so fancy, and this is new, this is like a month old, uh, oh, wow. a paper was published that an uh, iPhone 12, this is an 11, which has a magnet that's quite strong because it will help recharge the battery faster. Well, when you place a magnet, a medical magnet on a device, it deactivates a defibrillator and makes a pacemaker go at a preset rate. So what they did, um, and I think it was in Minnesota, they place, you know, a lot of people, us probably keep their phones in the pocket, you know, of their jacket or shirt, which is where the battery of the defibrillator sits. So if you stay like this, I don't know if you can see me. Um, so they did that and look at, a, we have interrogators, computers where we look at a device. Well, that deactivated the defibrillator. So, you know, we all think of the medical knowledge that we have as physicians or educated patients. Well, there's a lot of, we, those devices are in the millions worldwide, defibrillators and pacemakers. And patients come, human beings come in all, all variety of, you know, knowledge and understanding. And, you know, so sometimes it's hard. You might tell them, but they might not realize. So to the point that uh, actually Apple and Medronic, they uh, released warnings and notifications of possible interference between the phone, iPhone 12, and the fibrillators. Because if you deactivate a defibrillator and the patient has an arrhythmia, which is the reason we put the fibrillators in, and that's turned off, well, it's not going to save you. It's not going to shock you. When I saw that, I saw it on a Friday, it was shocking. I researched quickly. It was a Friday afternoon. So I said, let me not send it to my colleagues, to the department. Let me, let me sleep on it. Let me look into it properly. And um, by Monday morning, when we have our grand rounds, so it happens it was something on this subject. And after that, I send uh, the, the article to my whole department and to all my friends that I could think of, look, this is what's happening. And uh, surely, shortly after, I, I saw articles and warnings by Apple and by Medronic and by, you know, it started, the ball started rolling so people know what it is about. But um, electrophysiology, which is a passion of mine, and I give a lot of talks on those, on anesthesia about, you know, and catheter ablation to treat arrhythmias. It's something that's becoming very complex. And we have a Wi-Fi uh, directed little transponder in the heart because heart failure affects so many patients. So cardiologists across, we all trying to find that magic bullet or at least something to make those patients feel better, to not plug the hospital, to have a better lifestyle, to better. So this is becoming very complex. On the other hand, a lot of other diseases such as sleep apnea are treated with implantable devices. And they go here on the hypoglossal nerve or on the diaphragm. And then their batteries are here somewhere. So a battery on your chest could mean that you have a pacemaker or could mean that you have one of the other devices. So it's very complex. So I'm trying to educate people and also trying to make them like this field because it's 
maybe less known and uh, not so well liked. Wow, that's really fascinating. And, and, you know, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me because I'm in the telecommunication industry. So so I, you know, in a, in, in a way, a little bit, you know, involved, not a little bit, a lot involved a lot, into, yes. into the wireless, you know, wireless devices and 5G and the technology. And really what I've been trying to do is educating people on the other side of spectrum of how 5G technology and new generation technologies are going to really impact everything we do. And listening to you speak, it right is validation. Like technology is invading every okay. single aspect of our lives. So you guys, you as doctors, you you know you have to be technology savvy, of course. But you're not an engineer, and no. you're not a, an RF an RF propagation engineer. And now you have to be aware of you yep. know the the transmission the wireless signal, the, the Bluetooth, the Wi-Fi, and, and it's a lot. And it's the same with, uh, for example, I do a lot of work in smart cities. And so even with, with you know, uh, public officials, people that make the decisions in the city, now they have to decide, are we going to allow sensors in the city? Are we going to allow, you know, more antennas? Are we going to, you know, and so we have a vision of where we're going and I recently share a post and, and when people ask me, what's the big deal? I say, well, in 4G, which is the technology we're in, a movie can download maybe in six minutes, a full movie into your phone. With 5G, it would take 15 seconds to download that same movie. And that's the power of 5G. And it will allow things to happen differently. It would allow remote medicine to happen because that delay in transmission won't be there, what we call latency. And so it really is going to open so many doors and so many windows that we're not thinking of that I command you that you're taking the torch on your medical field and, and trying to lead the way in understanding how it's going to impact and how you can educate people about it, which is super, super important. I mean, people and peers. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> no, it's it's not an easy task because even in technology, it's not an easy task. And and I always say, well, we everybody has a smartphone. You showed me one uh, just a few right. moments ago, and we forget like the bad job that the telecom industry has done is we forget the power that this exactly. brings and how it's much there's behind it. Yes, the infrastructure that's behind it to make it happen and. All these things, and we always say in pandemic times, you know, without telecom, without the infrastructure, without the people that make it happen, we would have had a very different experience during COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. And Absolutely. so so I'm on, it's funny because I'm almost mirroring what you're doing on the telecom yet, side. Yeah. And it's great that we intersect because now I know, you know, when I bump into stuff that it's medical related and, you know, like that relates to anything you explain, I know who to call. I say, hey, I got this uh, beautiful report. I could definitely see some projects that we could work on because it's it's so important. And, you know, they are updated so so frequently. Yes. Because yes. the technology becomes obsolete in like, what, a year or so, probably less. Yeah, that's, that's one. Of, I, I will say I'm a technologist, but that's one of my problems with the whole thing. I think we are not allowing technology to settle in. Like companies, because they want to compete and they want to have the most innovative thing. I understand that angle as a business owner, but we are confusing the user and we are not letting technology settle in and being adopted. I think one of the things that the pandemic gave us is adoption. 
Like before, we've had a lot of these telemedicine, for example, capabilities for a long time, but no one called the doctor on Zoom before. Right. Until there's a compelling event like now. That now you did it. And now you don't want to go back to the office, right? To the doctor's office Absolutely. because it's so easy. <laughs> why, why should you, since you can do it from home? I, I agree. I mean, um, and that's, I think, what the future is. And those devices, um, and again, it's not only electrophysiology. If you look at, you know, interventional radiology, if you look, everything is becoming less invasive, which is good for the patient, but it's also complex. So we need, you know, we have representatives from the industry. I mean, this is very complex, what we're doing, but electrophysiology kind of took off in the sense of those devices with the technology and uh, the intersection that is, I think, important for people to catch up with it, physicians and patients alike, and, you know, general population. Well, that's that's awesome. And I think you're really at the, at the forefront of what's going on in your field and in the telecommunication field as well. So I commend you for that. So I definitely have to know more about what you're passionate. I know you're passionate about shoes and you're in a great city to to, <laughs> to get that passion resolved. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after your long day and after, you know, we know you, you love TV, me too. I wasn't that much of a TV lover, but lately I have to say that I don't know if it's age or what, but at the end of the day, I just want to put my feet up and watch a good show. <laughs> a lot of us do that, but I do, you know, I love opera. Okay. Oh, I do live a few blocks away from the Metropolitan Opera. Okay. So I can actually walk. Well, of course, unless I have high heels and I take a taxi for five <laughs> blocks. But And, you know, uh, I'm suffering for the last year because there was no opera, no ballet. I love ballet. I have mm. zero talents of singing, drawing, uh, playing an instrument, but I love to attend and... Um, that's been hard for New Yorkers because we are used to have a subscription to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So I can just go in and, you know, I don't need to buy a ticket. I don't need to make an appointment. I, now with the pandemic, even as a member, you have to book a ticket. You don't pay for it, mm. but you have to. Opera is gone. We, fingers crossed, the season might open at the end of September, the 21-22 season. The same for ballet, but yeah, I love opera. And I, uh, when people come from outside New York, I ask them, and I, I always try to educate them a little bit. I'm like, I have to give you my spiel. You know, if you've never been <laughs> to the opera, you should go listen to La Boheme. You should start with a beautiful music opera. You should go to, I, you know, I like I go to the season twice for the same opera to see both casts to compare. Oh wow! And I'm not You're a connoisseur a because my I'm tone deaf, but I could I know what I like. So, so I always try to educate people on the subject. You know, you should really try that. If you're in New York for a short period of time, you should do opera. You should do ballet. You should try this opera because it will kind of give you a a good idea. Don't don't try to do really obscure operas. Pick your. So I do that a lot. So what's your favorite opera? If you have one, uh-huh. like if this year after pandemic, you could see only one. Now you get your chance to go back. What do you okay, have a favorite? A hard, um, I would love OM. I go every year, twice a season. <laughs> but I love, I love Turandot, Pink Nessum Dorma, Pavarotti. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome. There are a few operas that I like, La Traviata, um, and I'm fortunate enough that I live in New York City, so I can go, again, on a whim. Uh, I can just get a ticket and go. Yeah, well, you're making me want to go. I love opera too, but I never, I've done plenty of Broadway musicals, I guess, but never the opera. So that's uh, that's something that I'm, I have to put in my bucket list to do opera in New York. Yes. Very good. Very good. Well, you know, is there anything else you want to share with us? I mean, this has been fantastic. I, you, you definitely are a true New Yorker. You sell the city very well. I have to say New York is my favorite city in the world, and I consider myself fortunate to have traveled the world quite a bit, but there's an energy about New York. There that's, is something uh, about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying, you know, we, we pandemic and everything else has taken a toll on us. And I am telling my friends, I'm, when I come to work, I take a taxi and I stick for the yellow taxi because those people suffer a lot. The, the business has gone down and... Uh, I'm like, I'm taking a yellow cab and I'm paying cash because they need help. <laughs> That's very nice. And, um, you know, there were no conferences. So we had no, that's very, uh, for us as physicians, and I think for everybody, the networking and the exchange of ideas, it's, it's nothing beats the person-to-person interaction. So that's been something um, I was supposed to be in China to present end of February, beginning of March of last year for a really oh. nice international conference. I had the plane ticket, a hotel, and then of course the pandemic hit. So I gave the talk this January on a Zoom. Um, yeah. So there is some hope that they will they will have some sort of conferences that we can uh, interact. You know, as I said, I'm making my mission to popularize and know people know about the offsite anesthesia in Europe, where it's not so known, so well known, and. Uh, yeah, just uh, live the New York life. Well, it sounds that you're having a fantastic time. It sounds that you're someone that really has followed follow his dream all the way to New York and that you're doing, you're making a difference, you're making impact. So I'm not surprised that your colleague, Dr. Ruth, says she is for sure a back to basics guest. And I, I really thank you for taking the time to share with us uh, your knowledge, your experience, and your passion. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. And uh, here is to future projects, maybe. Absolutely. And to Opera in New York. And to Opera if, if I make it back, I know who I'm going to call. I, I can be your date on one, Absolutely. <laughs> on one Opera we'll night. Absolutely. have champagne <laughs> at the intermission. I love it. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for having me, Leticia. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you, and until the next time.